This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Have you ever noticed how celebrities have brighter, whiter looking eyes? Their makeup artists have a little secret in their kit. Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops. You guys, I use these every single day. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute. It literally happens right before your eyes to help them look brighter, whiter, and more awake for up to eight hours. No wonder it is so loved by influencers, celebrities, and makeup artists and has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. Lumify is also the number one eye doctor recommended redness reliever eye drop and it's FDA approved. No bleach, no dyes. Plus it's made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb. So whether you're on set, on a date, or running on just a few hours of sleep, you can have eyes that look brighter and whiter with Lumify eye drops. And when you try it, you'll see that it is what your eyes have been looking for. So check out lumifyeyes.com to learn more. Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club Podcast. And if you're listening to this on the regular For the Love podcast feed, welcome. For you, this is a sneak peek into all the incredible fun that we have behind the scenes at the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, which we would love to have you join. There's room for you. It is the greatest community. And you can find out more at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. So I told her this in the interview, but we decided to choose a book for November to delight us. November, turns out, was a bit of a challenge at the end of a very challenging year and tensions are so high and everything is so strained and stressed. And so we said, here's what we don't need. We don't need our book selection to cause us fits. We want a pleasure book. We want to enjoy it. We want to just rip through the pages and know that we are going to fall in love with the characters and it's all going to be okay. And it's all going to work out in the end. So I'm so happy to talk today to Abby Waxman, who is the author of our November selection for the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, The Bookish Life of Nina Hill. So let me tell you a little bit about Abby. She's so interesting and you're going to really enjoy her today because she has that perfect dry delivery. I completely loved talking to her in this interview. She's had a really interesting life. So Abby was born in England and her mother encouraged her and her sister to read absolutely anything they could 
get their hands on, which they absolutely did. And by the way, Abby's mom was an author. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. I didn't know that. Abby became a copywriter and a creative director running ad campaigns for these huge clients in London and New York, like AT&T and Chase and American Express, you know, these tiny little companies. But then she left the ad world. She actually had her own agency. She had three babies and she began to write books. Also TV shows, screenplays, so that she could, in her words, get a moment's peace. And now she lives in LA with her family and her three dogs, her three cats, a gecko, two mice, and six chickens. (laughs) Oh, I so enjoyed this conversation. I so enjoyed her book and you will too. So I'm so pleased to share this conversation with author extraordinaire, Abby Waxman. Okay. So welcome to the podcast. My whole book club just sends so much love and affection to you, even though this is our November book and we're only here at the midway point of November when you and I are talking, most of us are done. We blew through it. Good. Yeah. It's not, it's not, you know, a tale of two cities. You can blow through it. I hope in a day or two. You can, and you want to, that's the thing. It's like, just keep going. Yeah, I've never really wanted to write the kind of book that is a challenge. I'm not, I'm not looking for more challenge. I'm not looking to create more challenge. So yeah, I'll leave that to other people. That's so cute. What a cute thing that you just said, because when we were looking at sort of charting out the books in book club, when are we going to slot them? We knew, of course, like here that November was going to be a tense month and that tensions were going to be high and everything's already a challenge. So we're like, let's pick a book that is pure pleasure that we just get to enjoy. It's going to give us a happy ending. We don't have to worry at any point that you are going to like throw us for a loop and our lead character is going to die. And so it was the perfect book. Good. I mean, that's really the nicest thing you could possibly have said, because that is my entire goal has always been with my work to try and create, I don't know, I've always gotten so much pleasure from books myself. And although I have at different times tried to read tougher books, and I certainly enjoy classics and and know all the rest of it. But generally speaking, I, I view books as an escape and a pleasure. And so that, that's always what I've wanted to do with my own work. And, you know, there are lots of people who think very hard about their work and try and improve people's minds. And I am not that person. I'm mostly trying to give people a laugh. And I want to write the kind of books where you read it and you're like, God, that was really fun. And then you pretty much just forget it. And maybe you, you pass it on to a friend would be the best, right? Or you read it on a plane and then you leave it in the pocket for the next person knowing that they're going to like it too. That's, that's what I'm going for. I will never kill a dog. I, I love you. this. I love that whole description. That is fantastic. And you are so right. There is such a place for books like that, that are enjoyable and fun to read, snappy, snappy dialogue. You're really, really good at that. And you just mentioned that to you, books were an escape, which is a great place to start. Let's just dive into Nina here. For us, of course, I come to you Jen Hatmaker of the Jen Hatmaker Book Club. So we're book people. We are reading people. So much of this was resonant with our community, of course. And so a lot of us could really relate to Nina and how much she depended on books as an escape. Get away from her loneliness sometimes. She said early on that she saw books as medication 
and sanctuary and the source of all good things. So we're curious to know, and you kind of just started to touch on it, how much you relate to that and how much of this is semi-autobiographical, if at all. Well, she's obviously a lot younger than me and she has the hair that I wish I had and probably is just generally speaking cuter all around and a snappy dresser. But strangely enough, she has read the same books and seen the same movies as me. So in that way, you know, in some ways she's the, e- I don't know, in this, another book I wrote, Other People's Houses, the main character in that book was really me. Mm, like she, really? she's a middle-aged, you know, woman with multiple children and Francis, her name is, and, you know, she's overweight, she's middle-aged, she's mostly happy. That was really me. Nina is the character that is the most like the inside of my head in, in that her sort of stream of consciousness is a lot like my stream of consciousness in that I'm constantly, my brain just leaps to make stupid references constantly. And I don't say things as much as she does. Like she just pops out with them. But yeah, if someone says, you know, ping, then I hear Sean Connery saying just one ping from Red, <laughs> Hunt for Red October. I can't help it. I can't help it. They just, that kind of stuff just springs into my head. Luckily, I married someone who also has that same reference all the time. So we don't even need to say it. We can just say ping. And there's, you know. It's like shared vernacular. Yeah, you're just searching for a partner who has the same movie references in their head and it just saves so much time. That's just know? really it. It should be the first filter any of us apply to our partners. Pretty much. I love that. I come from a family of movie quoters and book quoters. And so every single bit of that I loved. And I love knowing that that's kind of the way that your interior brain works. I'm thinking too about Nina because she's sort of ADHD and, and then she also suffers from anxiety, which you wrote about like really poignantly. And then obviously she's got this childhood to reckon with, no knowledge of a dad, an absent mother, I'll be at a generous nanny. So she's got a lot in there. She's got a lot in the mix. So I'm curious, we're all curious actually, as the writer of this story, what was it like for you to, or how did you even get into Nina's headspace? and write what she was thinking and even feeling because you did a lot of physical writing about what anxiety felt like in her body and what loneliness felt like too. I'm wondering if you, what was your special lead on kind of who she was? Well, I think that like many of us, I've experienced anxiety at different points in my life, some points more seriously than others. I think we all get anxious. I mean, there's situational anxiety, which is, you know, normal and commonplace. What she suffers from and what I have also suffered from in my time is you know, a more sort of generalized anxiety disorder where, or social anxiety problems where it it really becomes a physical manifestation of your state of mind. And it's, I find the physical, for me, at least the physical aspects of being anxious. So tingly hands, feeling like, you know, the sides of the room are creeping in in on you, that you're going to be, you're going to throw up, you're going to lose control. Like those kinds of things were so painful that they sort of, and this happened mostly in my early 20s and mid 20s. I eventually, side note, stopped drinking, which solved a lot of those anxiety problems. Who knew? That was just my story. But that experience sort of settled into my DNA on some level. Like it's very unfortunate, perhaps, in that I can remember exactly what that feels like. You know, that feeling of sort of sudden clammy horror, I think is that is powerful. You really can't escape it. And it's, 
I think in our modern world, it's one of those few moments where you really remember that you're a small mammal, that you really are a physical creature and that sometimes it doesn't matter how much civilization you have or how much, you know, how many sort of successful trappings you have. At our core, we're little little creatures. We need each other. We need security. And sometimes we flip out you know, and we freak out. So anyway, so I I very strongly remember those feelings of anxiety. And I wanted to give a character that problem, but show that she was still able to function. She was still able to have a job. She was still able to have relationships. She was still able to pursue her life. You know, mental health and the the sort of efforts we make to preserve and maintain our mental health run alongside our regular lives, right? Very few of us have the time to just step out of our lives and, you know, go to a mountain retreat and you know, summon our inner gravitas, most of us have to like, put that together on the fly. Totally. So, you know, I wanted to write that kind of character, because that's the kind of person I was and the kind of people I know, you know, lots of people suffer from anxiety. So I appreciate that realism. Right. I mean, there's no need to pretend it's anything more than it is. Like, it's just sheer blind panic. And, you know, you get through it and it passes. Although you did it like just right on the nose toward the end when she had the panic attack about the store closing, the shop closing, when you said something like, once you have a panic attack, then it's the fear of having another panic attack. And it's just this cycle that can keep you trapped for a while until you can kind of access your resources and your tools and pull out. That's been my complete experience with panic and the, my closest relationships is the fear of an attack is so debilitating. I appreciated you including that. It is. It becomes its own sort of, this is the sort of baffling nature of anxiety is it really just builds on itself. You know, it really builds on itself. And it's very, very hard for anyone else to break that for you. You know, people can be super helpful and and people who understand what you're going through can help you and sit with you in the moment and help it pass. But ultimately, you know, you sort of have to reach a point where you're able to just step away and like cool yourself down. And I wanted also to show that she was able to do that, that she had those tools. You know, she's, she's not flailing in the face of her situation. She's succeeding. Right. And she knew what to do. She knew she needed sleep. She knew she needed solitude. You know, she reached for what had obviously pulled her out previously. Which is what we do. It, it is. I want to talk to you about just the way you develop your characters because there's just so much color. You know, there's so <laughs> much color to your characters. They're just delightful to imagine as a reader. You know, when you're in someone's story and you just can see each and every one of them. I'd like to talk about the surprising family that you handed Nina, you put some characters in there. Can you talk about how you developed them and really maybe all of your characters? Do they, are you the kind of fiction writer who starts with a pretty solid idea of a character and just begins to build the layers or do your characters come to you? Do some of them surprise you or present themselves to you in a way that you didn't see coming? sort of a combination of all of the above. I'm not, as you probably can tell, I'm not a great plotter. Like I feel like that's my big weakness as a writer. I don't actually consider it a weakness, honestly, but it is a weakness, which is they're not, I don't write tightly plotted books where a million things happen, right? Like just because that's not my experience, it's rare that I've had to like intervene in the middle of some kind of nuclear code problem or like, you know, take over a submarine or any of those types of things. I haven't had to, maybe you have, I haven't. And so I don't write about that stuff. I write about the stuff that I see in front of me and the people I see around me. 
most of us are sort of complicated, weird bags of mixed nuts, you know? And so those are the people that I like and the people I wish I was friends with and that I want to talk to. And I find that most people are like that, actually. Most people are really very strange and have all kinds of good stories and have all kinds of good... I can talk to anyone and I, there's always stuff I can steal. And I'm a terrible stealer in that way. So am I. Let's use the word thief because that's a word we already invented for someone, not a stealer. That's not a word. I don't know. I find other people so interesting. But then the characters just become... So I usually start a book with a character who I have in mind. And for Nina, for example, she was based on all of these young women I met when I was doing a book tour for the previous book who worked at all the bookstores. So there were all these young women who worked at, worked at the bookstores I was visiting. And they were all really cute, really cool, really fun and quirky. They knew a load about books. And then in general, millennials, I find, are sort of the uber reference people. Like everything is very meta for that generation. I love. So they'll be like, oh, well, I feel like this, which reminds me of X, which reminds me of Y, which reminds me of Z. And then they contextualize it. I don't know, they're sort of a post-critical generation and I find them endlessly entertaining. And so I wanted to write a character where a book where she was the hero, where that kind of person was the hero. And even if you're not, you know, saving democracy in the middle of your lunch break, you're still having a life that is full of drama and excitement for you, you know. Of course. And it doesn't need to be stopping a runaway horse. It can be just, you know, getting through the day is pretty much legendary in my book. So that's who I write about. And then the other characters just show up usually. I keep writing about the same people because I've discovered, and I've said this before, but I'm going to keep saying it because it's accurate, which is it's like going to a party on your own versus going to a party with a friend, right? Like I already know these characters, like Nina's in the book I'm writing now, right? Nina's Yay! coming back. Oh, that was one of our questions. Back. Polly is coming back. All of these people, the, the next book that will come out, not next year, but the year after is all the same people. And all the, all the books end up being about, this neighborhood of people and they meet each other and you see them into I like writing about them and so when I started this new book and I was like you know what I'm gonna have Nina be in this book so that I know half of it you know before I start absolutely and there's more to tell that was one thing that we've been talking about in our book club which is we've got more questions like we'd like to see some of this develop we'd like to know more about Lydia we'd like to see how that relationship progresses because we got it there at the very end, this sort of coming together of those two quirky ladies. There's got to be more there. Lydia's going to be in the next one. So the book I'm writing now is about a new girl, a new character called Laura, who arrives in Larchmont. And so it's about, you know, she basically arrives, it's a complete disaster, and Nina and Polly take her under their wing. And so it's about, it's not really about them, particularly their, their secondary characters, but their friendship helps Laura and Laura helps them, right? The book after that is going to be a straight Nina book. And I think, I haven't worked it out completely, and I don't want to give anything away, but I have a feeling that Nina and Lydia may take a road trip. Oh, I like that. Yeah, because I like Lydia. She's kind of, yeah, she's different, and I like that. I do too. I knew I was going to like Lydia even when she was unlikable. I'm like, oh, I kind of like this crusty personality. There's usually something under it that I really enjoy. I could tell she had it. And so I was delighted that you gave them a chance to kind of bury the hatchet a little bit and be a little ornery together. I like that orneriness that they shared. It's so interesting. I love to hear that you patterned Nina after these bookstore girls that you kind of experienced on book tour because your grasp of millennial language was so concrete 
And I hadn't looked you up. I had to go find you. Cause I'm like, she's got to be 29. Like she just, she has to be 29 years old because she knows how to talk like this. And Dude, I am a fat 50. <laughs> I turned 50 in the quarantine period. I love it. Fabulous and 50. Well, you nailed the language of that age group. Just nailed well, it. Thank you. I, I thought that I, was your generation. No, I have lots of friends because I, I also have kids. And so they're babysitters when they, they're older now, they're like 18 and 18, 16 and 13. So when they were little, the babysitters that I had were millennials, right? So as they have grown up, and now most of my millennials that I know are now in their late 20s, early 30s, they're getting married, they're having kids. <laughs> you know, so I spent a lot of time with them. And I don't know, I just think that whole generation, for some reason, people are really mean about millennials. I don't know, I think that generation is great. And I think they get a lot of crap for reasons I don't really understand. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, so... Yay, millennials. Listen to me. Taking care of your mind and mental health is just as important as taking care of your body and soul. And BetterHelp is here to make caring for your mental health easy and affordable. So with BetterHelp, you can connect with a licensed professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can start communicating with your counselor between 24 to 48 hours via text, chat, phone, video. And if it's not a great fit, you can even change counselors at no cost. And listen, you're definitely not alone in this. So many people have been using BetterHelp. They're actually recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As one of my listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash for the love. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash for the love. Buying gifts for guys is hard. Am I right? Teens, grown men, like whatever. Sometimes I put it off until the last minute, but listen. I found these grooming gift sets from Duke Cannon at Target, and I am telling you, they check all the boxes. They're useful, they smell good, and the names make me giggle. There's the Beard That Stole Christmas gift set, where you get a beard wash and two kinds of beard oil in these delicious scents like cedar and citrus, and they even have this big bourbon beard oil made with actual Buffalo Trace bourbon. I mean, it's pretty manly. They also have a soap set called the Frothy the Beer Man gift set, which is hilarious. It's got three soaps that are made from actual beer and bourbon and have these really spicy sandalwood and oaky scents. Each of the gift sets is available for only $20, which is a steal. So head over to Target today and get the Beard That Stole Christmas gift set or the Frothy the Beer Man gift set from Duke Cannon. The dudes young and old in your life will appreciate you. Find these Duke Cannon gift sets in the men's grooming section at Target today for only $20 each. All right, back to our show. I really appreciate the type of relationship that you gave us with Nina and Tom because sometimes in relationship books like this, we get these big huge, wild kind of personalities, like just this sort of penchant for crazy adventure or risk-taking, or, you know, we get that big character to kind of work off against. But I really appreciated how, 
Well, Tom keeps calling himself ordinary, that his siblings are more adventurous than he is. He called himself normal. And of course, we know how Nina feels about a simple, ordinary life. And I like that. I like that you nestled this relationship between two ordinary people, that one of them isn't like super spectacular or over the top, even kind of dragging the other one to a different kind of energy, but they matched. And that's kind of what you said. I, how did you say it? Nina said to Tom that being with him was as good as being alone, which was a really great line. Yeah, being alone is my favorite thing. So yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the big romance in the world is between regular folks. It really is. The sweet, deep love and affection you feel for someone that you feel super comfortable with and who you feel sees you as you really are and isn't really demanding anything you know, enormously painful of you, but is just trying to meet you where you stand. That to me is big romance. Like that is true love. It is not, you know, I'm all for running through the airport scene as, a, as the next woman. And I'm, I'm thinking of putting a running through the airport scene at the end of the current book, for example, just because I enjoy that trope, you know, and I love those big moments, but I find so much pleasure in the small moments that I think that should be celebrated as well. Like relationships where, you know, you hang out and watch sports together. That's happy times. Like that's good stuff. You know, that's the stuff that holds you together over difficult times. Yeah. It's not grand passionate declarations of eternal fidelity. It's seeing the bears lose every freaking week. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Not that I'm dissing the duh bears, but you know, it's, or that, you know, it's going to the grocery store. It's that's what holds you together. Not the big stuff, but the constant everyday accretion like a pearl that like binds you in a much more solid way. And I, I want that to be celebrated. And I want to write about those relationships where people are dependable and reliable and honorable, you know, and, and maybe it's more exciting to write about people who, you know, you think are cheating or they're being dramatic or it's all like, oh, but that's just not what I like to write about. Lots of other people do. So, and that's the beauty of it, right? Readers can go and find the books that they want for the mood that they're in. We don't need to nail it all, you know? So that makes me want to helicopter out of the book for a minute and kind of come back up to the 35,000 foot view with you, because can you just talk a little bit more about how you steered the ship into becoming a writer because it's not where you started you had a different kind of work different kind of writing um and it's a it's a pretty big pivot to move to becoming a novel writer can you talk a little bit about that yeah so it actually felt very inevitable to me because my mother is a novelist and a writer and so I thought that's what you did when you had kids i had always written you know I was never like I want to be a writer. I just was like, I'm going to go over here and write this. So I had always written, but writing novels is really hard work. So when I was 18 or 19, I was like, no, that's, that's way too hard. And I had nothing to say because I was 18 or 19, right? It's rare that you really know that much at that age. Lord bless you. I started off working in advertising, which is what my dad had done. So, you know, it was it's a great job if you're not sure what you want to do and you want to work and you want to write for a living because you just spend all day writing and having it just ripped up and thrown back at you <laughs> at over and Sorry. over and over again. So you get used to, you develop actually very useful skills for a novelist, which is taking criticism without getting upset about it, throwing away work that doesn't work for anyone else but you, 
and learning to write in a variety of different tones of voice, right? So you're writing for IBM, you're writing for American Express, you're writing for some other company, you develop different tones of voice. And so you learn how language implies character. And so, and then you just do it over and over and over and over and over again for years. And it just is practice. I love it. And then I had my own, I worked at lots of big agencies and then I had my own agency for a while. And then September 11th happened just as we were actually firing everyone and closing the agency. This was in New York. And so mm-hmm. after September 11th, we shut the agency. And then I was like, well, looks like this is the time. And so then I started having kids and started working on books. So that's how it happened. But like I said, I thought it was what you just did when you had kids, because <laughs> that's what I'd seen. I thought you got picked up from school by someone who wasn't really talking to you because they were still thinking about something else. And then they would go home, run into their room, shut the door, and then clouds of cigarette smoke would come out from <laughs> under the door. And then they'd emerge later on and make, you know, heat up some beans or something. Not that she was neglectful, but she was working, right? She was working. So that's just what I grew up with. And it is a very good career if you want to, if you have kids, it's, you know, you, as long as you don't attempt to think you're going to get work done when the kids are around, then it's good. That is the tricky part. Yeah. First book took me seven years because I had three kids under five. So I was like, I'll write when the baby sleeps. <laughs> How cute. Yeah. Doesn't work like yes. that. So, no, it doesn't. I didn't even sleep when the baby slept because I was so inexperienced at first, but second and third, I was like out the whole time. Yeah, so the, the first book took seven years, but then each subsequent book has taken about a year because the little buggers went off to school. And so... It's game changer. Game changer. Yes. Yeah. Had you been like ruminating on that first book until you just absolutely had to write it? Because usually a writer's a writer because you just can't help it. You know, you just cannot help but be a writer. We have to do it, have to put the words down. Yeah, no, I have to be writing to be fully happy. Like if I get, if I work every day, I'm better off. Than if I don't. No, because I wrote several books before then that were crap. Oh, okay. You have to practice starting, you have to practice finishing, and then you have to practice the middle part, which is the really challenging part, it turns out. Yeah, so I wrote a couple of books that were crap. And then I tried to write screenplays for a while because here I was in LA and, and my friends were like, you should write a screenplay. So I, yeah, that didn't work either. But all of that work was contributory to my getting better at it. Like, you know, you, you ideally get better with every book. I hope I'm improving. I'm not completely convinced, but hopefully I'm improving. And writing the first book came about just because I was so annoyed with my husband one morning that I decided I was going to kill him. And then I decided I couldn't kill him. Well, I would have divorced him, but it was so much paperwork, right? And I was like, could just any number of accidents could happen to him. So I was driving, driving the kids to school and I was ruminating on how best to dispatch my husband, probably for leaving a wet towel on the bed or some other like terrible, egregious sin, which he still does 25 years later. Yeah, they can't be reformed. They can't help it that wet towel is just drawn ineluctably to the corner of my side of the bed. But then I started thinking about, well, what would that actually look like if you have little kids? And then I, because I had like a three-year-old and a baby or two and a half-year-old. and a, Oh, no, I had a five, a three and a baby. Oh, mercy. So that would actually be quite sad, you know, because they, the kids wouldn't remember him. And that would be really sad. And that, that started me thinking about how you would approach mothering when you've lost someone so important. Like, what is that, you know? So then I started thinking about that and what the character was like. And then I just started writing the book. It just took me a long time to write it and then I had to put it away for a while because an agent I had at the time wanted me to make it sexier and I didn't want to do that so I put it away for a while and then came back to it so anyway I don't write the sexy books that's someone else's job 
somebody else will write it. Yeah, that's, that's we we it's, stick with our lane, do what we exactly. love, write what we write. I write what I write. How does the success feel? Is it exciting? I mean, it must feel really exciting to have this level of attention on your books and on your characters. And do your readers contact you a lot? They do, and that's the best thing about it is that that readers write to me and are so sweet and so nice and encouraging. The success, and I'm putting air quotes around the success. It feels strange because. I'm British. And so it's really, it makes me super uncomfortable when people are nice to me. So um, I'm always like, no, 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 no. But actually it is enormously gratifying to hear from readers. Like that is the best thing. It's nice to get paid for doing something that I was doing already for free. Right. So that's, that's a huge plus, but the best part is definitely the readers. If you were me on Instagram, you would think I was really successful and famous because everybody on my bookstagram, like all those bookstagram people are, are being really sweet to me all the time. So I could easily get full of myself until you remember that there's really only like 300 of them. <laughs> and they're just really, really nice. And they're just really constantly, it's just the same 300 oh, people talking to me. That's cute. And so it's good to remember that while I feel an enormous responsibility to those readers and genuinely when I'm writing the book right now and I have Nina do something, I think of them and I think, oh my God, they're going to really like that. Or I'm going to be like, they won't like that. I have to change Uh that. Not that I'm writing for them. I just want to make them happy. You want to please them. Yes. I want to do stuff that's fun for them. And I know that they like it because, you know, they write to me and say, I love that what's her face shows up in this book or, you know, so they notice the things that I'm doing. And that is a huge luxury. My mother never got feedback like that because she was writing in the seventies and eighties. There was no internet. There was, she got fan letters occasionally, but you had to like write a physical letter and send it to the publisher and hope that the publisher would somehow find the right editor who would find the right agent who would get it to you. Like it was tough. These days it's instantaneous. And that's enormously fortunate. I couldn't agree more. The internet has created communities out of us and it's sometimes wonderful. It is sometimes wonderful. Sometimes very, very wonderful. Okay, I've got some questions for you from my book club. I had a million, but I just picked some. Here is a question from one of our book club members. Her name's Audra Kornack. She said, Abby, did you have experience meeting family members you didn't know about or know someone who had that experience? The latter. So I, my father was somewhat like... It's funny, when I started writing the book, and this happens to me repeatedly because occasionally I get delusional about what I'm capable of. So I started off what I wanted to write a book about a father who basically was a serial father, right? Who basically kept divorcing and remarrying and having kids, right? My father's been married three times. God only knows how many kids there are, but I've identified children. There are five of us, but across many marriages. Oh, anyway, so, but I wanted to write this big, you know, sort of sturm and drang about this terrible, terrible father. And then in the end, I found, I felt actually quite sympathetic towards the father character by the end of writing the book, just because I was like, he's missed out on, missed out on so much. It didn't make me feel good about my own dad. I certainly am not ready to forgive him for anything, but I was ready to forgive that character because I was like, he's paid such an enormous price. Everybody has paid an enormous price for his behavior. Like those children, multiple adults and children were like left, you know, wives were left. He left devastation. And, you know, he's one of those people who causes trouble. And when things get really difficult, just leaves, right? Because he can't handle it. But ultimately at the end of his life, he found some happiness. But I have a friend whose son is older than his uncle because her father married multiple times and married a younger woman at the end who had 
younger kids. So it's it's easily done and I think probably frequently done. When I first heard that story, one, I laughed for a long time. And then, because that, that's just funny, one. And then two, what does that mean for uncleness, right? Like, what does uncleness mean if you're younger than, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's, so that just interests me from a language point of view. You know, like the term father and mother have these meanings, but actually, if you don't do those things, if you don't do mothering, does that, are you still a mother, right? Like, and I wanted also to write again about a character, you know, the nanny, you know, the nanny raised her. I can't even tell you how much the babysitters I had contributed to my children, right? Those women, those young women, several of whom are still literally family, as far as we're concerned, because they ended up being with us for years and years and years. Those women contributed just as much to my children's happiness as I ever did. You know, they loved my children just as much. You know, they cared deeply about them. And so it's like, it all builds. All of this love just builds. You know, it doesn't have to be biological. No, it doesn't. And that was a point of real connection for a lot of us as your readers, a conversation that we're having inside of our community a lot right now, which is how many of us can identify with dads kind of like that, moms kind of like that, absent nannies. There's just a lot of parent caregiver content in there that's not this sort of normative like clean path through childhood that most of us, frankly, can relate to most. I mean, who has that? No one has a clean path through childhood. Right, exactly. It is almost oxymoronic. Like it's just not the way it is. Not to mention that these ideas that we have are completely Western centric, right? Like they're just, they're not even globally relevant, right? So we just need to let go of some of that stuff. But it's like, everybody gives everybody something, you know? And this one I'm writing now, which is at the moment at least called Adult Assembly Required, is about how the adults in your life help you finish growing, right? Like how the, your peers help you finish the task that hopefully your parents have started. Also, I wanted to write a character that, you know, the people have said, oh, the mother is such a terrible character. She went off. And I'm like, you know what? She was an artist and she left to pursue a career that was enormously important to her. And if I had made that the father character, no one would have made any comment whatsoever. Right? You're so, right. You helped us have affection for the mother. You did. She wasn't a bad woman. She just was a, a visual artist and she had her yeah. career to take and kind care of. No of. nonsense too. Not going to be bogged down in drama ever. Yep. I appreciated that. Yep. And also she actually provided for her child better than she would have done it herself. So, you know, she found someone who was a better match. Now she didn't even know it. She just got lucky, right? She happened to find someone who was a big reader and who was able to help Nina get through a quite anxious childhood and who was able to identify with Nina and support Nina. Sometimes those aren't going to be the people who provided the egg. Sometimes those are going to be the people who, you know, are other people. That's okay. Absolutely right. I appreciate that, that Nina was not resentful, but grateful for the nurture that she had in whatever way she got it. And I don't know, it just made a lot of room for a lot of different kinds of families and a lot of different kinds of stories. These days when it comes to saving, every little bit helps. And if you are looking to save some cash, you've got to check out the coupons.com app. So the coupons.com app 
offers cash back for everyday items you get at the grocery store. They have hundreds of coupons from your favorite brands like Starbucks and Tide and Crest and Pepsi. Plus, you can use these cashback offers at any store from Whole Foods to 7-Eleven to Target. Just make sure you pick up an itemized receipt on your way out. So here's how it works. You download the coupons.com app and start tapping all the cashback offers for items you plan to buy. Then coupons.com will send you cash back in PayPal after every purchase. It's that easy. It's the coolest thing. I've gotten cash back on makeup, dog food, chocolate. I mean, these were things I was going to buy anyway, and now I'm getting paid to buy them. So download the coupons.com app on your iPhone or Android today. It's completely free and totally easy. Again, download the coupons.com app today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Get groceries and get paid. What we all need this year is some PLC. Peace, love, and most of all cookies. And you know who's here to make our gift-giving dreams come true? Mrs. Fields, of course. I know when I say Mrs. Fields, about 95% of you are drooling and thinking of a huge slab of cookie cake right now with a huge dab of icing piped right on top. But stay with me here because Mrs. Fields has tons of holiday gifting options for the friends and families and coworkers on your list. Everything from cookie towers, cookie boxes, cookie tins, Rice Krispie treats, chocolate dipped strawberries, brownie bites, coffee cakes. I mean, they aren't messing around over there. And of course, they have my beloved cookie cake and a few different options. And now you know what I'm getting myself for Christmas. I'm so excited to tell you about this offer. My listeners get 20% off site-wide with the promo code for the love at mrsfields.com. Just click or tap the microphone at the top and enter promo code for the love for 20% off your whole order. That's mrsfields.com, promo code for the love. All right, back to our show. Here's another question. I 100% had the same question. This is from Ellen Kays. She said, have you been on a trivia team before? The trivia was such a wild card, little fun storyline that had to have been personal. Well, yes and no. I've never been on a team because I'm not a team player. And generally speaking, not an evening person. Gone are the days when I would start my evening at 11. Like that's just not. Totally. No, I end my evening around 10. And that is, but I do love trivia and I am obsessed with it. And I do belong to this thing called Learned League, which is a trivia, a daily trivia thing that you get in your email. And I am a little bit obsessive about it mostly because often I get one out of six and it's so boring. And then the next day I'll get three and I'll be like, yeah, I just enjoy those tiny moments of triumph, right? I'll take it (laughs) at any point, like find a good parking space. Yes. Nail a trivia question. Excellent. Like I try and live my life like my dogs do. Yeah. You know, I'm basically like, I want to be like a dog in that I'm just happy with what's going on and I'm going to make the most of whatever's right in front of me. And Yeah. So I just try and be like a dog. Oh, that's so cute. And the trivia element was really fun. It was so snappy and funny and silly. And, and it had all this sort of its own internal ethos about it, that if you're not a trivia person, it's like peeking into a little club that you didn't really know existed and hear how they talk. And it was really fun. And it's a big deal. People take that stuff really, really seriously. 
in the one I'm writing now, Laura gets brought onto the Nina's trivia team. So it's it's all still going to be there, just because I love it and it's a really good. So when I'm writing a book, it's a very easy diversion to go off and look for trivia. <laughs> like I have no idea what I'm going to write next. Let's go look for some trivia about peas, <laughs> and then I'll just go and look up something about peas. Oh, I love it. That's so fantastic. Okay, as we kind of wrap it up here, this is just something I'd love to ask our authors because we always get so many great answers and suggestions out of it. But obviously, until now. (laughs) No, I believe in you for this one. I really do. I've got a lot of stock in you because you're a reader. We're all readers. We'd love to know either what are you reading right now that you're really excited about or something you've read recently that you're like, this is a good recommendation for people who love books and stories, any of it. First of all, I'm hopeless because I read and reread the same oh, I do too. types of books. Yeah. So I'm a big golden age mystery person. Oh, nice. That is my genre of choice. So okay. during this time, this dark time, the mm. sniffing time, I'll call it, I have gone back and I reread in sequence all of Agatha Christie. So oh, not all nice. of it. Don't get, don't get me don't get me wrong. I didn't read the Tommy and Tuppence. I think they're secondary. Anyway, don't get me started. But all the Miss Marple, all the Poirot. Oh, yeah. Then sure. I went to Such Patricia Wentworth and read all the Miss Silvers. And like, yes. so basically I have been reading mysteries, golden age mysteries in order, in their entirety as a complete escape. As just, I'm not even here. I'm actually in 1947 London and it's a bit foggy. You know, I'm just not acknowledging reality whatsoever. So that's what I have been doing. And then I was super excited about the new Ali Broche book when that came out. Mm, I don't know about Hyperbole and a Half. Which oh, is a yes, very, yes, very yes, yes. Hyperbole we, and a Half. We didn't hear from her for a while. And no, then she, she came had, back. You have to read the new one and you'll find out why. It's a little darker than Hyperbole and a Half just because of what happened to her, but it is wonderful. And then I also always recommend, you know, Let's Pretend This Never Happened by the blogger. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love her. Yeah, it's my go-to if someone's like, what's the funniest book you ever read? That's usually up in the top three because that book made me. She is so fun. She's so naturally funny. Oh, it just, and the way she does it is just, she just says things that you just aren't expecting. (laughs) I think she's brilliant. I found her first through her blog and then followed her into book writing. And she's a fellow Texan down here. But I mean, I can remember sitting in front of some of her just writing on the internet and I would just have tears pouring down my face of laughter. I just could not believe how irreverent and hilarious she was. Just She's a genius. A fearless writer. I love your suggestions. I grew up reading all the Agatha Christie's, of course. What a fantastic genre. That makes me want to go back. Talk about escapism. That's the thing. It's a pure escape. Pure pleasure. It's a fa- they're fairy tales. Good girl always wins. But evil is always vanquished. And also, I really recommend Patricia Wentworth, mm. who wrote Miss Silver Mysteries. Yeah. And Miss Silver always, she's another old lady who knits, uh-huh. right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. And the, those ones, there's always a little bit of a romance as well, because she always helps, you know, so of in the course. end, she, she makes it work so that the poor hero doesn't have to go to jail or whatever. So I love those books. It's a perfect formula. It needs no toggling with, no. do not ever mess with it. Just give it to us. And Agatha Christie is one of the greatest writers in English in terms of her use of language like they use those books to teach English as a second language because her sentence structure and her grammar is so perfect but natural like you don't you never think to yourself wow what a great writer she is the ideas just go straight into your head and so she to me is the ultimate writer in English just because just go straight in you don't even know you're reading 
So we know that you're working on the next book. When did you say we get to have it? You should have had it next year, but I missed my deadline. Yes, as it happens. Did not do a good job either. I've never, I had it kicked back for the first time and I'm going to blame the pandemic. I'm going to let you. I thank you, but I think it was actually me. But um, but yes, so I was a little bit humbled this year, but that's always a good experience. So I'm making it better. And when it's good enough, you'll get it, which will be not next spring, but the following spring. And then the following year after that, you'll get another Nina. So. This is great. Look at you. You've got your next five years charted out. How fantastic. Like I have any control. Yeah. <laughs> over any yeah. 2020 has sure. taught us that. Like... Real cute, your little plans you're making. Yeah, I have no idea where I'm even going to be next year. So, yeah. Okay, well, listen, we just love you. Thank we you. enjoyed Nina so much this month. It was what we needed. Good. It really was. It was the book we needed. It was the book we all enjoyed in our bathtubs and just felt happy and tickled and delighted about. And so, this is indeed what you do well. Thank you so much for your time today, too, for coming to talk to us in the middle of the day. Everyone's going to be so excited to see you and get to meet you like this. And we'll be signed up for the next book whenever she shall be published. Yes, when I eventually get it right. Yes, yes, we'll be first in line. Okay, Abby, thank you. Thank you, Jen. It was a pleasure. Same. <laughs>